we're looking at this word devoted that shows up in Acts 1 and Acts 2 and seeing how God might stoke our imagination to be a different kind of church. To be devoted to something is to make something or someone, an event, an activity, a person, whatever, the new center of gravity in your life. Other things begin to revolve around it. Other things shift and change in light of that. Time, money, relationships, whatever, start to bend towards this thing like a black hole. Everything else kind of getting sucked into this. So when we think about devoted, last week we saw in chapter one, Jesus commands his disciples to wait and their response to that waiting is to pray. Because prayer is how a Christian waits with purpose. And this week as we get into to chapter two, we'll see the answer to their prayer, the, the way that God showed up in response to their waiting and, and what kind of community they were like after that. After the season of waiting, what were they devoted to as a church family? So that'll be chapter two. Um, you can start turning there in your Bible and um, on the app if you got it. I'd love for you to have that open in front of you. But we talked um, about the, the network vision, kind of SALT network, what we're about. I just want to take a step back and, and tell you a little bit more about that. So this church was planted out of a, a church in Ames called Cornerstone. If, you, if you've been intro to Docs, you've heard this story. And planted with an intentional vision to try to love and reach UW. And try to love and reach this city as we love and reach the campus. And we're part of a family of churches trying to plant churches out across the U.S. And, and sending people around the world with that vision. Because, man, for so many of us, when you're in college, you're starting to make decisions about who you want to be, what you want your life to be about that will set the course for the rest of your life. I know when I was in college, like I came to, to faith in high school, but it wasn't until college where I started to have real conversations about what do I do with my money? Like what do I do with my time? How do I, how do I live in a community? How do I actually have friends that are Christians and do mission together? Maybe for you, like college or that time after high school is when you start taking your faith seriously and owning it for the first time. I got to be a SALT director for a number of years at a, at a different church in our network. And as a SALT director, I, I felt like I had this responsibility to help train college students' taste buds for what life could be like as part of a church, right? Increase their expectation a little bit. Because if you, if you look at SALT coming on the surface, it's kind of a duh sort of thing where it's like, okay, so you, you gather every week and you worship and you open the Bible. And then you go to these small groups somewhere else throughout the week that someone else leads and you un- unpack that and apply it. And then you try to like, like love each other and serve each other and share the gospel as, as people around you. There it is, right? You're like, yeah, duh. <laughs> this sounds very normal. But the hope is if, if a student goes through that in college, again, it, it increases their expectation for what life could be like after college, like what they could look for and long for and be a part of after college. And I got to see that in my own life. I saw that in friends' lives. In fact, some of the people that came to plant this church were Salt Company students, were college students that, that got that vision and said, yeah, I want to be part of it. I'm going to go start one of those in Madison. It's awesome. It's a beautiful thing to see. But sometimes, sometimes a student leaves Salt Company and comes over to kind of the community side in, in the church and they, they experience this profound, very adult emotion called disappointment. Someone say disappointed. disappointed. They're, they're disappointed of what life is like, like real life, right? And some of that is because, frankly, like they're not here so I can say that. Their, their expectations are a little bit too high, right? You don't make friends by like showing up on your dorm like you did in college and you're like, we randomly got assigned to the same floor. Are we going to be in each other's weddings? Yes, cool, sweet, let's go, right? That's not how adult life works. You have jobs, you know, bills, some of this family, all, all that stuff. You have different rhythms, so you can't spend all night hanging out, talking about whatever. It doesn't work the same way. And college students, like, they can feel so busy, but I had friends who were like, man, I was studying so late last night. It's like, dude, you were hanging out till three in the morning doing homework, and then you had your af- 
actually have to start after three. No wonder you didn't get any sleep, right? It doesn't work that way when you got a job. That's not how real life works. So some of it is misplaced expectations. When I was coaching college students that were graduating out, I, I would tell them things like, dude, you gotta lengthen your expectation, your time scale from days and semesters to months and years, right? It just is gonna take longer and that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Some of it's misplaced expectation, but what if, what if that salt company thing, it, it actually worked the way it was supposed to? What if we actually did train their expectations appropriately in some categories and it's not their expectations that are broken, but actually ours? What if their disappointment isn't, isn't a them problem, but actually, but actually they showed up at, and we had settled for something less? What if with the busyness of everyday life, bills to pay, mouths to feed, all that stuff, what if we began to settle for showing up to church events and activities, cramming a little bit more of Jesus stuff in when we feel like we need it, but, but along the way we've kind of lost Lost some of what we were supposed to expect together. Now, I get in a room like this, there, there's, there's people in, in all kinds of different places. Some of you aren't Christians here this morning, and, and I'm so glad you're here. You're exactly in the right place. So when I talk about these church expectations, you're like, dude, I'm not even in with, the, like, what are you talking about here, right? My expectations are low, but good, keep them there. That'll be healthy for you. But, but, but listen to me. We're not trying to make a church that's like, performing and putting on good like Sunday best masks and whatever and, and if you walked in here with a sense of cynicism or, or even just like a guard against everything I'm saying already could you could you just maybe like set that aside for a minute and go what if a church really did exist that that was healthy and alive and beautiful there was something going on that wasn't just people trying really hard to be really nice church people if a church like that actually existed could there really be a God that would be the one moving there and as you meet people in this church and hear them talk about prayer and, and, and if you show up to the women's breakfast or a men's breakfast along the way, if you start to see these things, could you for a minute suspend your cynicism and go, okay, maybe, just maybe, there's something to this thing that, that people for the last couple thousand years have been orienting their life around. Maybe, maybe Jesus is real. And as we talk about what we wanna expect and who we wanna be as a church, maybe there's actually a God behind this and he wants you to know him. For others, you're, it's, it's the first Sunday of the year, you're checking out Dachshund, you're, you're like, I'm just trying to figure out what you guys are about. As we read through Acts 2 and, and, and what the rhythms of life of the New Testament church look like, can I, can I just invite you into this? Maybe it's not at Doxa, but maybe God is trying to invite you to be the kind of person that, that doesn't just discover the right church to be at, but actually helps develop the place you're at, the community you're in. What if the invitation for you this morning isn't just to try to find the right fit, although there is something important to that. A church isn't like a country club that you just kind of pay dues to, but it's a family that you're part of. And whether that's doxa or not this morning, maybe God is trying to up your expectation, not just for who those people are supposed to be in that church, but actually who you are supposed to be as part of a church family. Again, whether it's doxa or another church you land at, who you're called to be. And if you're part of the Doxa family, my, my prayers I've been studying and prepping is that our expectations would, would increase. Not the amount of programs and activities and shuffling to church stuff, but actually the expectation of what God might do in you and in us together. But, but the question we gotta ask in the text is like, what is God actually trying to do? Who is he trying to form us into? What is it supposed to look like? And from there, how do we become that kind of people? Now, now remember, Acts is not a recipe book. It's not like, you know, add these ingredients and boom, perfect church pops out. Like, that's not how it works. 
In fact, in our passages, there aren't going to be any commands for us. And the church in Acts was not perfect. They struggled with ethnic divisions and, and theological divisions, all this stuff. They needed organization, administration, all this stuff coming later on along the way. But it's meant to stoke our imagination for what God could do. Again, it's meant to increase our expectation and imagination of what God might do among us. Not a formula, not a recipe, not a silver bullet, but, but when God shows up for a group of people like us, what could he do? So let's turn to Acts 2 and ask that question and see what God has to say for us today. Now, as you're getting there, again, Acts 1, they're devoted to prayer because they're waiting. Jesus said, wait, and I'm going to bring the promised Holy Spirit. Because the, the New Testament, when, when Jesus is the Savior, when he is the King, anyone who's in with King Jesus is sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's not first class and second class Christians. Anyone who's trusted in Jesus has the Spirit, and the Spirit coming was a sign of that promise coming. Joel 2, coming to light. So they're gathered praying, waiting expectantly, and the day comes. They're praying because that's the center of gravity in their community, and all of a sudden, the Spirit descends on them. And they start speaking in languages they didn't know, worshiping and praising God, and this starts to draw a crowd. And in God's timing, it happens during a festival called Pentecost. That's the Greek term for the Feast of Weeks, celebrating harvest. It was a pilgrim festival where men and women from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish men and women, were coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate. She had people with all kinds of different languages. And so when, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, he had already started bringing the ends of the earth in for them to hear about Jesus. In God's timing, as they waited, men and women come from all over and these like backwater, podunk kind of people from a fishing village start speaking in all kinds of languages. And so a crowd gathers, right? And like, what is this? What is going on? So Peter stands up and preaches the first sermon after Jesus here. And he tells them, man, this is what you've been promised. This is what was coming. And, and look at his kind of punchline. Look at how he wraps up this first sermon in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And then he kind of like caps it there. Hey, y'all killed the Savior. Any questions? Like he, he's not used to this preaching thing. He doesn't know like, and now here's some application. He doesn't really know how to get there yet, but, but he's basically going like all of the promises, let all of you who know your Old Testament, who have been waiting and longing and hoping for the Savior, the Messiah to come, that's Jesus, that one that you killed, the one that we've been saying came to life. You can't find his body. The tomb is, is empty. That's the Savior. And they're like, Wait, whoa, what do you do with this? He didn't, again, tell them a response, but, but God is working through this message. Romans 1.16 is so clear. The power of God is in the message, not the messenger. So, so even when, Paul, or when Peter kind of like crash lands the plane, God is at work through this message about Jesus being the Savior. Look at verse 37. How do they respond? Now, when they heard this, this massive crowd of people, they were cut to the heart. It's not just an intellectual argument, although there's, there's reason and there's thought and there's argumentation, but it, it goes through to the heart, to the seat of their will, to, to the center of their life. They're cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Because you didn't tell us, right? You gave us this news that, that Jesus died, but what do, we, what do we do with this now that he's risen to life? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not just some special people out there, but anyone who trusts in Jesus will receive the Spirit. For the promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, like to the ends of the earth, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The response to this good news is, is turning. 
turning from whatever else you were trusting and turning to trusting Jesus' finished work as the Savior. And the men and women in this original audience would have been trusting their ethnicity or their heritage. They would have been trusting their religious devotion because some of them had crossed so many miles to be at this festival. Maybe they were trusting their, their good works, their discipline. They were trusting so many things. And Peter's saying, none of those things can save you. None of those are good enough. You turn from trusting in those to trusting in the person and finished work of Jesus. And the way that you demonstrate that to the world is baptism. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28, make disciples of all the world and and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit. Not in the name of a a particular person or church, but in the name of our God, Father, Son, Spirit, together. And, And this also would have been offensive for this audience because baptism is what you did to Gentile people who were trying to become Jewish, who were trying to become part of the people of God. That wasn't for Jewish people. But over and over, starting in John the Baptist, we see this call that it's not about being born into the family of God, you need reborn into it. That's Jesus' language in John 3. You can't just add on more good religious stuff and hope that gets you in. You actually need a renewed heart and only God can do that for you. It's not outside in somehow, but it's inside God working, overflowing out the rest of your life. Baptism is this picture that that Jesus says, it, it symbolizes actually being buried with him and being raised to life with him. It's going public with faith. This inward reality of repentance and faith becoming an external reality where everyone else around you sees there's something different going on in your life. How do they respond? Verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness. Just like Jesus told them in chapter one, you'll be a witness. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. They've gotten faith, they've gotten religion, they've gotten God crooked, but Jesus is the one trying to make the path straight. In verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. They were added to that number added that day about 3,000 souls. Yeah, come on. That's pretty awesome. One person thinks that's cool. That's great. Um, Y'all need to read Acts more, but that's okay. Um, This, like, stumbling attempt at a sermon energized with the power of God where men and women from all over the world have seen God on display and come to trust Jesus. It's incredible. It's astounding to think about. And some of them would have gone back to their home countries after this festival and said, guys, something happened to me. The Savior we've been waiting for, he's come. And so, so when the disciples move out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, they would have found people that have heard like, yeah, what has been going on? Like, Jesus, I've heard about him, what's happening? He, he was preparing the way for, for men and women to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. But some of those people stayed in Jerusalem. There are some people from the area and some, some stuck around and their first instinct together is to form a new kind of community. This is where we're gonna see our devoted language come in, but, but once they've trusted in Jesus, once they're in with him, what does that look like for life together in each other? So, so the bulk of our passage, we're just gonna go with a fine-tooth comb starting in verse 42. This is what their church is starting to look like. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Maybe if you're looking in the Bible, you see like a little um, heading that says the fellowship of believers. That's like a, later on someone trying to help you navigate through that, but there's no paragraph break in, in the original text between verse 41 and verse 42. The natural response to these people coming to Jesus was, was their new devotion. And again, devotion is a center of gravity, a new center of gravity in your life. They didn't add a little bit of Jesus into what they're already doing. They didn't invite Jesus to come along with what was already happening. Jesus completely interrupted their story and became the new center of gravity that everything else began to revolve around. I just want to unpack what what these particular things were in verse 42 so we can understand what they were devoting themselves to, what what they oriented themselves around. First it says the apostles' teaching. 
So this was the, the apostles unpacking Jesus' words for them. The Spirit reminding them of Jesus' words, but then also unpacking the Old Testament to show how it points to Jesus the Savior. Peter already was doing that in chapter one and chapter two, and it continued on. And to this day, we actually have that in the Bible. The Bible is God's word for us, protected, and it's a new authority in this community. The authority in their community wasn't a particular person who had some cool ideas and some nice thoughts or whatever, but it was God's word. Unpacking it, explaining it, orienting themselves around it together. They had a new authority in God's word. The second thing they devoted themselves was the fellowship. This is kind of a, a weird word. Um, the Greek word is koinonia, and, and we don't really use the word fellowship all that often, right? Lord of the Rings fans are like, actually, I use it every day. But, but <laughs> you, you don't really use the word fellowship when you're talking about normal stuff, right? You're not like, yes, I had some good fellowship with my, my homies. Like, yeah, that's, not, that's not how you talk. And the Greek word is, is kind of weird to translate koinonia, because sometimes it, it, it's sort of talking about like joining in with people with a common mission and purpose, but other places, Paul uses it for participation with the Spirit and with the Son. There's something deeper than just kind of like we're on a team together. There's something, there's something reorienting about their identity in this. They don't just see themselves as individuals doing a, a new thing, but actually as a new kind of people together, participating with God and therefore participating with each other, a deeper bond than just showing up to events, but again, a new identity. So they have a new authority and a new identity. This is the breaking of bread. Later on, it'll talk about breaking bread like eating food in houses. Maybe you've heard that phrase, but, but when the definite article here, the, shows up, the breaking of bread, it's talking specifically about their communion meals together. When Jesus started communion, it was during Passover, Generations had, had celebrated Passover as God freeing his people from slavery. And Jesus takes this meal and says, that was always pointing to me, a true historical event that was always pointing to me. I am the point behind it, not just saving you from, from physical slavery, but actually ultimately even from slavery to sin. He took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he passed and said, this, this is my blood shed for the new covenant. And the church would gather together and eat these fellowship meals and celebrate communion. And remember, we have a new unity with our God. We are actually this God's people because he has done everything to save us and rescue us and ransom us and redeem us. We are not slaves anymore. We are sons and daughters of him. And then they'd have a meal and they'd be sitting with each other. And they'd go, just like that God saved me, he actually saved you too. And I'm passing this bread to a brother or sister. I'm, I'm passing this cup Maybe you've been part of a church before that would physically pass the bread and cup and you'd look someone else in the eyes and go, Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. And you respond, and for you, right? They have a new kind of unity with God and with each other because of the finished work of Christ. So a new authority. They, they have a new identity, a new kind of unity. And then it says the prayers. They devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers, Again, they were already a praying people, but when it says the prayers, it's talking about their rhythms of praying together. For a good Jewish person, you'd have certain times of day, certain, certain times of the week, and even the year where you'd have set prayers you'd do. You'd go through the Psalms maybe and pray those things. You'd gather together with people praying, or you'd, you'd be by yourself at home praying. If you remember Daniel in the Old Testament, he, he was devoted to praying multiple times a day, set times. He was giving himself over to the prayers. This is a new kind of worship orientation for their lives. It wasn't just like, yeah, we hang out and we eat, it's awesome, but they also were, were showing up at the temple before they got kicked out of the temple praying there. 
And in each other's houses as they're praying there. They're unpacking the Old Testament and praying through the, the Old Testament prayers. And when they would show up to the temple or when they'd be praying together, it was also different than it used to be because at the temple, people would be offering sacrifices. And this new church wouldn't because Jesus was the final sacrifice. They knew it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats, but actually a renewed heart that God was, was always pointing to. And they'd show up and pray together and they'd pray through the, the, the Psalms and, and they'd realize that we have the Spirit now and he's, he's teaching us how to pray. He, he's sometimes even helping us pray when we don't know what to pray with groans too deep for words. He's, he's showing us how to pray. It's different than how it used to be. God isn't far away. He's actually been near and, and he's sealed us with his presence. Their worship was completely different now. Again, whether they were kind of out in public or when they were in private together, it was, it was different. That's what they were devoted to. And if you take a step back, that might sound a little bit duh, right? They read their Bible, they hung out together, ate some food, they worshiped. The, the thing about devoted, and the thing that I keep coming back to as I'm studying is, it's not some new magic bullet. It's not some new, like, cool book that we could write of like, wow, we finally discovered it. It's actually very simple, main and plain kind of things. The amazing thing about devotion isn't the exact things you're devoting to, although these are all phenomenal. They're, they're amazing, but but it's actually being devoted to these simple things where everything else orients around them that becomes extraordinary. Stripping off the excess to focus on the essential and it becomes extraordinary. This is what they were devoted to. And, and Luke can't stop there. He's gonna begin describing their community. He, he can't just tell us what they did. He actually wants to tell you what happened, what resulted as they did this together. Look at verse 43. Awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe, maybe you've used the word awesome recently, but awe is the sense that you are in the presence of something big and beautiful and grand and maybe a little bit scary. I don't know when the last time you felt awe was. Maybe you you took a trip and you went to the beach and you looked out at the waves and, and you looked past the waves to the horizon and you thought it is miles and miles and miles and miles before any other land and the ocean is teeming with life and it, and it is so deep that we've barely begun to explore. This is massive and I am small and it's beautiful. Or maybe you're drawn to the mountains and you, and you stand on top of a mountain and you look out and you go, I am so small and this is incredible. This was their experience of life together because they were like the God of the universe who made everything. He loves me. He loves us. He is with us. He is moving among us. This is beautiful and, and this is big. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than what I thought it would be. This is amazing. And wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. I don't know what your church background is. Maybe you read stuff like that and you're like, oh, a little weird. Glad we don't do that, right? But, but this is an evidence that God actually was showing up for his people. And throughout the New Testament, there, there's examples like this, even the jacked up church in Corinth where, where God isn't just saying, hey, go do some stuff, but he's empowering life together. He's showing up in answer to prayer. He's gifting his people for life together. He is showing up in supernatural ways when his people gather together. Right here, it's the apostles and, and wonders and signs happening through them, but as the Spirit continues to be unleashed to God's people, the expectation is that actually anyone in Christ with the Spirit is gifted to build up the body. Some of that might look like outside of the norm and expectation. Other times it's just energized by God in a way that is supernatural. God's showing up for his people and, and building a new kind of community. Not because they were chasing awe or chasing wonders and signs, but because they were devoted to a few main and plain things and God was showing up. 
And Luke continues on from there. He can't, he can't just stop with this kind of upward God showing up thing. He has, to, he has to tell us even more about what it looked like for them to be together. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. Pause there. I love what he points out. Like Luke is a careful historian. He's pointing out real historical details. But again, our imaginations are supposed to be woken up. But, but look what he says. They were together. He's like, guys, look at that. They were together. And, and that sounds so dumb, but this was a, a motley crew of people. Different backgrounds. Some, some of them like different ethnicities, different social status, different economic status, whatever. They were together. They had a new authority and a new unity. They had koinonia, fellowship, and participation. They were, it was different than the world had looked at before. They were together, and they had all things in common. As they were worshipers of God and as he was changing them, they started to look at each other and went, I look at my stuff differently now because of what Jesus did. I, I don't look at my stuff, and I'm not playing this game of like whoever dies with the most toys wins. That's not how I look at my life anymore. All of a sudden, I look at these people, and I have a new kind of unity as we gather over our meals. And, and as they're breaking their bread in homes, like eating food together and talking, all of a sudden, they go, oh, man, my brother or sister across the table is just sharing the struggle they have. And actually, they don't have as much as me. I don't need this. I could help them. In fact, I kind of want to, Right? It wasn't compelled or forced from the top. It wasn't some weird tax of like, hey, you joined the church and now you gotta start selling your stuff. Like that's, that's not how it worked. But they had glad and generous hearts overflowing because of what Jesus had done for them. Again, if they've got unity with him and unity with each other, if they have a new kind of identity, all of a sudden they see each other and their stuff differently where they're a steward now. And they can invest that in, in the people God has put them around. All of a sudden, their church becomes a place where, where the people who are in the family experience the benefits of the family. It, it starts at home here, where, there aren't, where needs are being met, real needs are being brought, people are sharing what's really going on, and they meet each other's needs. And in verse 46, it talks about this rhythm, day by day, they go to the temple, public worship, but then they go to homes, and they unpack what God's doing, and they eat a meal. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all to anyone in here. It's been in the connection before, but, but that's, what, that's just the rhythm of life together. This upward devotion to God creates a new kind of like love and inward orientation in their life together. It wasn't a bunch of like holy special people reading their Bibles off in corners, but all of a sudden that public worship became, became fellowship in homes scattered throughout their city, praising God. And Luke doesn't stop there. He says they have favor with all people. It starts to flow outward. Look at the end of verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Day after day, more men and women who are not a part of this family go, man, there's something going on here I cannot get around. And, and they see their neighbors like eating meals with all kinds of people that they, they didn't used to be friends with before, but they're like selling their stuff and sharing. They're like, what is happening? What is going on with you guys? And these churches would be like, hey, Jesus saved me. Now I love these people. Like, you want in? Do you, do you want in with what God's doing? And the Lord adds their number. I love that line too because this isn't some weird like church growth strategy. It's not like, okay, if we only give to each other, then finally we'll have a big church. That's, that's not how it worked, right? The bigger the church got, the more headaches and the more complications it brought, but that was just God's work. 
And what we saw a few verses before is when people would repent and believe they would be baptized. So day after day, people are getting baptized and saying, I'm in. I'm in with Jesus, so I'm in with these people. Like the tank never left the stage, right? They didn't have a stage, but, but you get what I'm saying. Like every single week, people would be saying, yes, I'm in. This passage is meant to increase our expectation for what God could do and who we could be. But now looking at it, just to be clear, I don't see a single command in here, right? It's not like, therefore, thou shalt go break bread. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't say that. The point of this isn't to give you a recipe or, or even to jump straight to work harder to try more to do more church stuff. And, I, and so often I can get this jacked up where, where I read about them being devoted to prayer, I read about community like this, and I go, great, I gotta start doing this, I gotta start doing that, I gotta whatever. I jump to what I'm supposed to do, but, but don't pause and let God increase my expectation and show me where he's inviting me and, and us to experience this. Maybe, maybe you've done that too. As you read this, you're like, okay, I gotta, I, I gotta go to this person's house, I gotta sell this thing, or whatever. That, that might be good, that might be right, but again, if we jump to our to-do list too fast, we miss it. We are supposed to develop this kind of community and build it together, but we have to go back to their center of gravity first. Because so often churches in their attempt to be, to be the right kind of people and do the right kind of thing, if the center of gravity gets off, everything else spins out. And maybe you've been part of a, a community like this where you're working so hard and trying so hard and you don't experience it. And you keep showing up to events and adding new programs and developing new things and it, it seems like the more you add, the less you actually have. You know what I'm saying? Again, sometimes we need to strip back the excess and get to the essential to experience the extraordinary things God might have for us. I just want to make plain and spell out the, the things that they were seeing here. I want to put a phrase on the screen that sort of captures what they were seeing. Devotion to God creates love for each other and movement in our city. Devotion to God creates love for each other and movement in our city. It's not a recipe, but it's an observation about what God was doing. But listen to me, if you're coming in and you're going, man, I want to be a part of a church like that, but you are not in with Jesus, that is your first step. You don't get in with his people and experience all this stuff without first being in with him. You don't join a program or an event or whatever and experience this life. It, it actually comes from a person and his name is Jesus. You don't need a better church. You need a savior. And friend, if you've never experienced him as a savior, that's your step today. Devotion to God begins with actually surrendering to the one who, who came for you. Jesus is God in flesh and he didn't just live as a nice teacher or a good example. He didn't give you space to minimize him to that. He came as a savior to die for your sins because you are a sinner, just like me, just like everyone else in this room. You're a sinner and you don't need more stuff to try harder to do better. You need a savior and he came for you. Again, God isn't trying to get you to clean your act up and, and be a good, pretty person. He is trying to get you to come and meet with him. He, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility in the person of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to be the final payment for your sin so that if you trust him, you would be one of his people. You'd be sealed with his spirit. You'd be covered in his righteousness, not your hard work. You'd be in with God and therefore in with his people now and forever. Friend, if, you, if you're not in with Jesus, that is the step for you today. That's the beginning of devotion and, and, and get baptized like come next weekend, like fill out the thing online, whatever, talk to me afterwards, but, but go public with your faith. If I'm in with Jesus, I'm in with his people. That's your first step. And docs, when I talk about devotion to God and, and these things here, let me just get really clear with you. 
We don't find this life and this awe and this beauty and this movement outside the person of Jesus. We don't develop a new program or a new strategy that moves somehow past or beyond the gospel. The gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life and you gotta move on to M and whatever. Like, like it is the A to Z of the Christian life. Everything that we do together has to be built on the foundation of Jesus' finished work. The, the authority comes from him, who he is. The, the whole book of the Bible is pointing to our need for a savior and the person of the savior in Jesus and then everything flows after that. The fellowship and unity, the participation we have with God is because of what Jesus did. The unity with each other, we break bread celebrating that Jesus unified us with God and therefore with each other. And we pray and worship with a new spirit because our God has told us who he is. He's not out there waiting for us to somehow stumble upon him. He's come near to tell us who he is. The, the like dot at the center of gravity of their devotion is the person of Jesus. Like if you can picture a black hole, like the thing at the center of that sucking everything else in is Jesus himself. All devotion orients around him. It's expressions of knowing him. So, so what do we do with this? Again, no commands, not a recipe, but what do we do with this if God actually begins to increase our expectation? If you read this and go, I want it, I want in, what do we do? I think the first thing we can begin to do is actually take stock of where we can be in awe that God is already moving. I'm so grateful for the community here. Man, my, my connection group, last service, there were a number of people I was looking out and seeing, like, we're in connection group together, like, we've got this, like, I, I'm getting to see these things as we gather for worship and we gather at homes throughout the week. It's not perfect. It, it, there's, no, there's no like perfect method or whatever, but the God of the universe like loves us and he's showing up. I'm seeing prayers answered. I'm seeing people giving sacrificially and generously to help each other out. Like God has been answering prayers in your life. God has been drawing community around you. God has been developing this, this around you. It's incredible. Like first we just get to step back and be in awe of what God is doing, even the ways he's convicting you because he loves you and he's pursuing you. We get to be in awe that our God is here with us. But I think another thing this, this passage invites us to do is it invites us to a number of shifts. Shifts from trying to discover the perfect group or church to, to developing where God's put us. Shifting from trying to just like attend events to actually being a new kind of person. Shifts from, from, from trying to just like show up to sharing your life and what God has for you. We don't discover this, we develop this together. And so, where is God inviting you to take a step to develop this kind of community around you? It begins with your devotion. It begins with that center of gravity. Where is God inviting you, actually, personally, to become more devoted to him in a way that flows into love for his people and movement in our city? Like, look at those three elements and and ask yourself, where is it already breaking down in my life? Am I devoted to God? Do I love his people? It's not enough to just kind of like love the Bible if I don't actually love his people, right? Because the Bible tells me to love his people. If those are broken, we've got to examine that. Or if I really love Christians, but I don't actually love my neighbor, something is broken in that, examine that. Pray through that. Invite God to begin to change your heart in those things. But, but first look at where God is already at work and be in awe and celebrate. But then look at where things are starting to break down a little bit. When it comes to the four categories of their devotion, actually, I've got a few questions we'll put on the screen. I don't have time to walk through everything in detail, but, but maybe take a picture of this or in connection we talk about this this week and ask yourself these questions about your authority, the authority in your life, the centerpiece of the Bible, about your identity, how you're seeing yourself and seeing other people. Yeah, I'll let you take a picture for a second. Hold on. Some of you are like, he really meant take a picture? Yes, okay, go for it. 
I'll put, I'll put the next two up in a second when I see you. Stop taking pictures, okay. Also, you're gonna awkwardly have my head in the, the bottom of your picture, sorry guys. We good, we good, you guys? No, okay, I'll wait. I'm not going anywhere, so. Okay, ne- next two questions, this, the second half. So the first, uh, authority and, and identity, but now unity and worship. I think unity is a critical one because we can so often live with like relational brokenness So begin examining where that's breaking down in your life. If you've been unified with Jesus, with his people, where's that breaking down? Or worship, showing up for it, expectantly, hopefully. Now again, the point of these questions isn't to be a recipe, but to begin to prayerfully ask God and invite other people in to go, where, where are these things starting to, to, to break down in my life? Where can they move? Where can they change? As we expect and hope and long for God to make us a certain kind of church, that devotion, that devotion is the, the key, devotion to him that flows, that creates love for each other movement in our city. But Doc said, just to, to, this isn't like a weird pitch for what we do as a church, but an explanation when we talk about membership, when we talk about Sundays and, and Connection Group 2, this is why we do what we do. Again, not a recipe. I'm gonna say that until I'm blue in the face. Not a recipe, but when we talk about membership and belonging to this church, we talk about gathering and giving and going. We gather on Sundays and we gather in connection groups, just like we see them doing here. There's not a verse that says you have to do it this way, but, but we found that's kind of the best way we do it together. When we give, we give of our time and our talent and our treasure. We try to give generously and sacrificially because our God has been so generous to love us and give us himself. And so we try to figure out how can I be generous with everything I've been given, a steward to the people in this church and then beyond. And we go with the gospel to the neighborhoods, to the workplaces, the people God has put us around. He hasn't put me in your workplace. He put you there, in your neighborhood, to begin to invite people to meet Jesus. Not just show up for a church event, but to, to meet the person of Jesus, who is the centerpiece of all of it. When I talk about connection groups, for some of you, man, you've had like happy thoughts because you've experienced some of this. Yeah, your group's not perfect, but you've, you've seen people get real. You've seen people grow. You've seen people confess sin. You've had times of worship. You actually like, want to hang out with some of these people, and it's amazing. As I read through these rhythms, you're like, yeah, I, I think I'm starting to experience this. And for some of you, I'm so grateful that you've stepped up to lead. You're leading groups. You're hosting. You're making meals. You're just taking the lead by confessing and being the first one to, to get real about where your life isn't lined up with this. I'm so encouraged by my group and by, by so many of your groups because we're starting to see God show up in these ways. But for some, as I talk about connection groups, it's actually kind of a pain point. Maybe you had hurt from communities like that in the past and it wasn't, it wasn't in line with God. Or, or maybe you're like, dude, I filled out the form. I met with you. You haven't put me in a group yet. That's real, gang. For some of you, there's pain because you actually want this and you're not sure how to have it right now. And can I just tell you, man, that, I'm sorry. We, we don't have enough groups right now. It's just real, especially on the west side, but kind of across the city. As God is drawing more people to our church family, we don't have enough connection groups to create space for everyone to do this. I don't want that to be the case. We're like working hard as a church family to, to change that, but that's where we're at today. And, and if that's causing you pain, or, or even as you're hearing this, you're like, man, I want in, but, but you're feeling kind of stiff-armed. Can I just say, I'm sorry. Would you begin devoting yourself to the things God is inviting you into and devoting yourself to prayer. Like start praying with me every day that God raise up more connection group leaders. 
Set your alarm for 10.02 every day except for Sundays because you'd be here and that would be awkward if it went off in the middle of this, but um, pray Luke 10.2 with me. That's something we pray across our network that God will raise up more laborers for the harvest. Would you start praying with me every day that God will raise up more connection with leaders? More people to create space to lead out and, and, and to create the context for this kind of life to happen. Not because groups are perfect or, or the one you know, silver bullet or whatever, but it's just space to experience this kind of thing and practice being the disciples God's calling us to be. And guys, for some of you, you've been around the block, you've been in church for a long time, you've, you've heard sermons like this preached before, and, and listen to me, you're not making space for other people in your life. Like, you know the right answers, I, I don't question that for a second, but, but you could be leaders, and you're not. For various reasons, you got, you got stuff going on for sure, but can I just, can I just tap that for a second and, and ask you again, why not? Like, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What is holding you back from being a connection group leader or a core member of a group? What is holding you back from investing in the people in this church? Again, I get connection groups are not perfect, but, but when we talk about being a family here, we gather on Sundays and we gather in homes. Like, what's, what's stopping you? If you're waiting for, like, a call or a specific prompting from God, can I, like, I'm not, I'm not God, but I'm, a guy here just going, we need more groups? Hello? Like, do I have to, I don't know. If I, anyway, that's fine. And, and this is not some high pressure thing where I'm trying to like force you to do something, whatever. But this is just as a family going, maybe you could be the answer to someone else's prayer. Like the, the men and women that are longing for this community and, and praying 1002, maybe you could actually be part of that. And maybe, um, maybe the healing that you're waiting for would actually come from you leading and serving. I don't know who that's for, but if that's for you, let me know later. Okay. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. They, they were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions. They were distributing to, to all as any had need. They attended worship together. They broke bread in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor. And God added their number. Devotion to God, this upward devotion, created a new kind of love inward that flowed into mission in their city. Doc said, what is the next step of devotion that Jesus is inviting you into? And what would he do with a group of people that had a new center of gravity? We stripped off the excess to experience something extraordinary from our God. What would he do in your life if you became a devoted person like this? And how long to be part of a church like that? I'm so grateful for what we're already seeing God do, but I want more, don't you? Let's pray and invite him to do that in us and through us together as we worship him. Jesus, I confess that my expectations are often too low. I love the idea of you working, but, but in my own life I get comfortable. I try to add you into the other rhythms and stuff I've got going on, and I'm not expectant for what you could do. Together with my friends today, we just we confess that and we repent. This isn't about more programs or more events or, or, or the name of Doc said Jesus. This is about your glory and seeing you show up in our lives and in our world. And so today, if there's, if there's a step of devotion we need to take, would you invite us into that? Would you make it clear today and, and throughout this week as we process, would you make this so clear what you're inviting us to do? 
if it's opening your word or opening our homes or opening our lives, would you, would you begin to show us what you're inviting us into? Would you make us this kind of church for your glory, for your namesake? Because this city, there are men and women here who need to hear how good you are, who need to see what it's like when you show up and create a new kind of people together. And God, for our joy, would you do that in us? We're asking you to move, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.